First of all, artistic research is something that is not settled and may never be settled or should never be settled, meaning that there is no authority in place that would tell you what it is you should be doing. It is actually something to do with your own voice and your own articulation of who you are and what you're doing in a context that is actually respectful towards possibilities that are not yet anticipated within those histories that we know of. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of arts research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the Head of Arts Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Dr. Michael Schwab, who was most recently a keynote speaker at the ARA 2020 conference on the theme of artistic research in Africa, which was held here at Wits University in January. Like my last two guests, Michael is a trailblazer of artistic research. As the co-initiator and inaugural editor-in-chief of JAR, the Journal for Artistic Research, Michael has been at the forefront of conceptualizing the expanding field of artistic research in Europe and now increasingly internationally for more than a decade. Michael is himself an artist and an artistic researcher who interrogates post-conceptual uses of technology in a variety of media, including photography, drawing, printmaking, and installation art. He studied philosophy at Hamburg University and art at the Royal College of Art in London, where he received his PhD. He has been a tutor at the Zurich University of the Arts, as well as a research fellow at the Orpheus Institute in Belgium and the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. Michael, welcome. It was a great pleasure and we appreciated you speaking to the ARA conference in January. And it's my hope that this podcast will encourage more of our listeners to actually engage with your opening speech dynamics which I think was exceptionally rich meditation on many of the issues that featured in the conference. So the address for that paper will be in the supporting matter to the podcast. Let's get on to the first question. And it's really to do with the role of a journal, in particular, the journal that you were instrumental in starting, JAR, the Journal of Artistic Research. It's soon to be 10 years old to celebrate its first decade. And I wonder if you could speak about your understanding of the role of a journal in developing the conception of artistic research. Yes, Christo. Thanks a lot, first of all, for the invitation. And I'm looking at JAR really as, as a strategic vehicle. Some people have been questioning you know, journal publication as potentially being a sellout to the scientific publishing industries and the pressures to get onto these you know, peer-reviewed journals and the indices. For us, however, it's really been a way of, first of all, staking a claim that we shouldn't be disadvantaged in this context. And secondly, that we are confident that actually with the different sets of criteria and working processes, our peers from the creative areas can also peer review. They'd be doing this differently, but we are able to establish what we consider to be a quality of our research within our own processes. And in a way that had to be demonstrated. It was not really clear to many people, and it may still not be clear to a lot of people. And also one has to say that while there were other journals around, for example, art and research published out of the UK at the time, I think it was Glasgow, they were mostly about artistic research, questions of philosophy or aesthetics or epistemology. There weren't really a lot of presentations by artistic researchers and artists of the projects they were conducting. So we also wanted a very different voice and a very different approach to an area we wanted to open up and better understand rather than interpret and know already what we would consider, for example, research in the arts or maybe research in design and so on. So it's very much also an investigative project for which we needed to shift a lot of goalposts so that we could, in a way, capture this. So there's a lot of development, conceptual and technical, that has happened uh, that would allow us to achieve these goals. And in some sense, as we can see now after these 10 years, there are other 
journals, both within the research catalog that we've developed to host the journal, but also outside of that particular technical framework that are much more media driven and much more open with regard to the kind of criteria or non-criteria they're applying. So the field has gotten much richer now. And I think we are one element, one part of that development where people said, you know, we want to step out of the shadow of this kind of top-down application of scientific or humanities-type research paradigms onto us. Michael, what struck me is your decision, which was clearly a, a strategic decision, was to base the acceptance process, the editorial policy of, of JAR on the concept of peer review. Yet in that concept, you've developed quite a distinctive notion of treating the, the artists, the artistic researchers' submissions as expositions. Could you elaborate on that and speak to perhaps the genealogy of this notion of an exposition? Yes, I can. I mean, maybe first to say we opted for peer review, partly because strategically we want to make a point in academia, so it's an accepted format, but also because we wanted to challenge what you might call dominant gatekeepers within you know, art curating and, and showing, where basically a lot of decision-making processes are not very transparent or happen around people who know people who know people, structures and, and other things. And we felt that this kind of strong personal involvement would not really allow us to to formulate how we would engage with the quality and also the type of critique we wanted to apply. So peer review, in some sense, sidesteps a lot of practices of inclusion, exclusion within showing of art. And it's quite interesting, this, uh, in terms of the experience that we've had, that a lot of art practice that I would not know of within the usual art world channels of biennials or exhibitions or even you know publications within magazines would actually submit and publish with us. And our archive is a really rich, I think, repository now of what you may call strange or you know hardly visible practices that nevertheless exist and have a long history within some individuals' practices and across these. So it's an interesting side effect. So peer review allowed us to get other voices into the mix and have a really wide transdisciplinary field of practice that we feature. And and on top, and that is part of the strategy decision that we've taken, is that you know we we wanted to apply this like properly the way other journals within the sciences would do it, but within our own area. And for that, we said that given that it is basically impossible for artists to do art while fulfilling criteria. So you'd say, right, this and this and this counts as art, <laughs> you know, would in a way discount it as art because you're simply taking off a, off a list. You know, art is always surprising somewhere. It's always a little bit different somewhere. So we couldn't really have a process by which you would say, right, you know, we're going to say it has to do X, Y, and Z. So within that process, we needed an open structure and that open structure is discussed basically um, in one element of the peer review form and the process where we are asking whether or not the particular submission is exposing practice as research, which means that it's being enacted or staged or performed or, or shown so that its status as research becomes apparent. Usually, you would do this very simply by saying, what is the research question? What is the context? What is the methodology? And these are really valid ways of exposing practice as research, but they're also very stifling in academic contexts. Artistic researchers find it very difficult to always answer these questions properly. So in the form, we say, right, for instance, the period would say there is a, a research question, but if there's none, does this omission actually matter or do I get it? Don't I need the question to be spilled out for me? So the possibility exists that reviewers get the research presentation outside of anything orthodox that you might usually request you know, a, a research submission to have. So no, no research question, no contextualization, no methodology, no results. And still the peer would say, but it's a great piece of research. So depending on the projects, the goals, the strategies, the, in a way, elements 
artists want us and readers to look at, there may be more or less of these conventional elements. Most submissions we've published have some of that in there, but there are also some really radical ones where you basically have nothing spilled out. And that's quite exciting too. So in a way, this notion of exposition came in. Of course, it translates badly into some languages, like in French, for example, it would be exhibition, you know, the, the translation. But within the English-speaking context, that notion somehow helped us to not call it exhibition, but it's still a presentation of sorts. And it has a, a certain history coming from the World Expos, where basically you'd not only showing, but you're already entering a discursive field of, of knowledge. So it is not, as you might say, as mute as just showing, but it's it's showing with a discursive purpose. So that, that link, you know, we, we try to make. And maybe on top one has to say, this model assumes that things aren't already speaking. So for example, a video documentation of a piece may tell me the epistemic relevance of that piece, but it may also not tell me that. It's not self-given that any document I see will tell me that story. So I need specific modes of documentation, for instance, specific modes of uh, assemblage or contextualization that allow me to understand why a work, for instance, should be registered as research, how it should be registered. So one has to be in a way, a bit more sensitive as to the various levels of unfolding and infolding that happens in these instances of presentation. Thanks. That's a very succinct account. And Michael, if you look more broadly now after these 10 years of the Journal of Artistic Research, what does the situation in Europe look like for artistic research? How has it changed over these 10 years of the journal's emergence? Would you say that artistic research is now established? And if established, what have been the consequences of that? And how do you, as the leadership of the journal, relate to these changing institutional circumstances? Hmm, it, it's a difficult question. I mean, I'm also biased because, you know, I've grown up professionally in the UK and I've earned my own doctorate here and I'm still based in, in, in London. So I've got a bit of a partial perspective, although I've been teaching all over the place. And of course, I'm in contact as well. But the UK perspective adds a bit of a, of a different dimension to it because in some sense, the UK has served, you might say, as a blueprint or as an example in many areas because the UK was quite early in adopting what at the time was called practice-based or practice-led research. It's only very recent and not even in the UK so much that people talk about artistic research. It's, it's not really a UK term, but that already demonstrates some of the developments through that emergence of practice-based research into artistic research. And you can see how different countries that came online later have partly taken the UK as a model and partly critiqued it in the way they've approached their own institutional forms. The problem I find in general is that people, like your question implies somehow, people jump too quickly from the phenomenon of artistic research to its academic version, as if you know this is the context within which artistic research would have to establish itself. And that is by no means given and maybe not even the most natural environment where we would be looking for that that term and those practices. To give one example, the US has not really got anything like that infrastructure that we have here. The the MFA is still very much the uh, the terminal degree in in the in the US context. But if I look at the readership statistics and all the submissions we get from the U US, it's a very different image, which means engaging with JAR both as a, as a writer and a reader, doesn't really require that kind of doctorate academic structure to, to suddenly say, this is where artistic research is. People understand it's happening anyways, in different ways, maybe through different funding channels or different practices or whatever it might be. But this shortcut that we often see, or this short circuit, actually, that we often see between the academia and the institutional forms that takes and definitions of what artistic research might be is something that is, I think, highly problematic and, and, and troublesome and in a way might do us a disfavor when it comes to properly understanding what artistic research might be 
or what it might mean in the context of contemporary art. So this is quite important to understand that it has its benefits to look at, at those institutions. The benefits are around value, the value of epistemic contributions of art you know, is at stake, and that's an important element, and that's where academia matters. But the disadvantage is that it may detach what happens in the academic field of artistic research from the wider field of contemporary art and artistic research within that. So one has to be very careful about that tension. Having said this, though, you'll also see that as a journal, we are in a bit of a I mean, self-made luxurious situation because we don't really have to adhere to national councils, you know, research councils or, or whatever rule books there are. So even when you talk to people who are in local contexts who are very interested in alternative approaches, they may still be forced down specific avenues simply by well-determined academic modes. So they haven't yet been able to change those. So for example, how a viva has to be held or how research has to be archived or what kind of criteria have to be applied or how long somebody can or cannot study and whatever you might come up with or what counts as art <laughs> or such things. So that is problematic. So they're trying hard in the various contexts. It's a very slow progress. And as you've seen recently in some communication, I think it's called now the Vienna Declaration, where within the Frascati manual, you still don't have you know artistic research as a field its own right, which also applies to when it comes to research publishing, that within those systems, there is no field of artistic research within which CHAR, for example, or other journals could actually be registered and collected and be addressed as a group. So when we're discussing with government agencies the value of CHAR, say, the question is, where are the other journals? And often you find them registered in different fields. And then they say, you know, how can you compare this field with that field? And, and you get in a lot of difficulties because it isn't really accepted in that way yet. At the same time, you've got hundreds or probably thousands of researchers, uh, doctoral researchers, and also research programs around. And you've got, you know, well-established funding streams of these in the various countries. So it, it's clearly there and, and happening as a paradigm, but not really, you know, digested sufficiently on the academic, the library systems, the archives, the kind of systems that would help access and evaluate what it is that people are doing. I mean, th there's still a, a big issue around that. In terms of models, you see really that most institutions require to some degree, some form of binary structure where you've got some practice documentation. So say you might do a show or you might do a performance and some form of video or pictures or whatever it is of that. And you'd have some form of text, reflective text or some form of, of larger thesis that would somehow be relatable or related to that practice. And in most cases I know of, you have even like minimum and maximum word counts around this. So there's a certain quantification happening as to, you know, there has to be text and it has to be so and so long in relation to whatever practice that is. And that sets up a lot of problems as to why those different areas of making and writing don't integrate or how they can integrate and how would you count <laughs> if you were to integrate them. Does a video in which you speak count as much as the text printed out that you've spoken? These things are, are not really taken care of. So you've got, in a way, in many cases, not ideal solutions and, and not really good integrations of the requirements within one sense of practice that is intricately linked across the different um, modes of expression. This issue of the relationship between the explanatory text and the creative work is something that's very contentious here in South Africa. And it's interesting to hear you comment on that aspect. Can I bring in a different form very closely related, which is performance as research, PAR, as it's often called? And Annette Arlander, who I know you, you know her, has contended that artistic research is primarily an outgrowth of contemporary art with the implication of visual arts. And her contention, interesting in the light of the experiences you're describing, the institutional experiences you're describing, her contention is that artistic research, unlike 
a PAR is a field. It's a field or perhaps a discipline or even an anti-discipline, she suggested. Whereas PAR, because of the distinct history of performance and the way that performance has related to the academic study, performance, performance studies, she asserts that there's quite a significant difference between PAR and artistic research. What is your thinking about that? And I think particularly in the light of the ARA conference in January, which I think you would agree was dominated by performers rather than practitioners coming out of a contemporary art background, visual arts background. What is your thoughts on the relationship between those two? Yeah, good question. I mean, maybe just quickly say, yes, it may have been dominated by performance artists, but one should, in a way, understand that for them, in comparison to visual artists, it's much easier, I would argue, to come with their voice or their instrument or, you know, like a, a performance piece into a space that is not really suitable for this. Whilst as a visual artist with a large stretcher or with particular requirements to installation and the cost involved in getting stuff set up and whatever, it's much more tricky. So there may be various reasons why performance is or was overrepresented in comparison to visual arts. But that aside, I personally think all these definitions and in a way, the ontology of this or that and what makes this or that, I, I personally just couldn't care less. It's not important to me. What's important within the notion of exposition is that something is registered as research in an articulation. And of course, at that moment, it may also be registered as performance. It may also be registered as visual art and as research. But that is also something that that articulation does. In this particular type of exhibition, a piece may be understood as performance piece. It may even cross into theater, but it will happen and it be defined in the articulation. It won't happen because I know already what performance is or what art or artistic means. These histories inscribe themselves in the word that we use, but the term exposition and the practice of expositional articulations, in a way, have the power, I think, to break free those determining histories and say, this is how the practice would define itself almost. So it is a particular type of performance or a particular type of visual art. Or you may not want to define that. You are happy with what it delivers uh, in terms of epistemic surplus. Now, I can understand that for some people, those more disciplinary definitions are more relevant, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it is not a pre-given set. It, it's something that we identify after the fact, or if we are, in a way, looking at it before the fact, it is the kind of resources and histories people draw on and continue to write in that process. But not everybody does that. I think we as a journal have to be open enough to not have any presuppositions as to what a practice will amount to, whether it's this, that, or something else, including practices that people or most people may not recognize as art, bordering scientific practices or some form of semi-fiction where people just don't really know actually what that is, but they understand it matters. And I think these things are, in a way, uh, most exciting. I mean, one of the references I do use occasionally is, is like this field of pataphysics, like strange serial science that Duchamp and others have engaged with. And these possibilities exist, have existed, but they exist as strange surprises or not anticipated occurrences within a history and refuse still after 100 years to be actually properly defined within the historicities that those different disciplines you know, bring to us. So, so I would simply say, for me, it doesn't matter. What matters to me is that the articulation has managed to capture or to amplify or to unfold something relevant within somebody's practice in such a way that I understand its knowledge implication. I'd like to push you a bit more on the notion of artistic research, because this is another concept that is very controversial here in South Africa. Certainly my colleagues in this country having certain reservations about the term art and 
perhaps even stronger reservations about the adjective artistic. Why did you 10 years ago choose the term artistic research for the new journal that you were establishing? And you mentioned in your opening address at the ARA conference that one of the issues that has emerged from the experience of, of running JAR is, in fact, some misgivings about the notion of artistic. I mean, first of all, as I tried to illustrate just now, the key, in a way, fight at the time was against the notion of practice and theory. So a word was needed that would break the dominance that art making or performance making was considered a practice and theory would be something else. So what was needed was a third term, you might say, that is bigger than those identifications of practice and theory in a way. So that really was the reason. That's already part, in a way, of the fabric of practitioners. Secondly, one has to say, of course, uh, the context within which I'm working and, and, in a way, the work that Florian Dombois at the time, who was, of course, very instrumental in all of this, when he still worked in Bern in Switzerland, and slightly later, Hank Borgdorf, who came into this core kind of group. You know, we were, uh, I mean, I, I, I am, but also Florian to some degree, and Hank not so much, uh, in the visual art and maybe sound or music, but not necessarily within performance art or or like this this kind of you know field to do with theater performance and so on. I mean, so it was much more this kind of stronger visual art slash music histories. And of course, in a way, me being instrumental there at this point, my background is, is visual art, but also photography. So exposition and exposure may also be a little bit <laughs> you know, related along those lines. I'm not really sure. But one has to say, though, that I actually would have preferred to call it the journal for research, <laughs> meaning, as I tried to say, I don't really know what art is or isn't. So somehow, I simply wanted a place for all sorts of stuff to happen that would articulate itself as research. And it may be art, it may not be art, who cares? But in a way, it's too abstract a thought for the time, and maybe it would still today be too abstract a thought, to radicalize it to that degree to say that we can do away that notion of art, because as I said, strategically, first, we have to establish that those practices, such as art or music or performance or whatever it is, or architecture, you know, have that place. And maybe once there's less of an imbalance, one could say, now, where are actually the disciplinary borderlines and are, do they still exist and can we maybe have such a general journal so this arts term in the title of the journal is part of the strategy decision at the time but one has also got to say that it is not the journal of art research which has a different history and much later we discussed in particular with relation to a chapter by alisa upitis and gina badger within the intellectual birdhouse book that florian i Ute Metabauer and Claudia Mara is published, where they've been discussing the notion of artistic in a different way than we did. But very interestingly, that the notion of artistic is also somehow stressing it's not proper art. Meaning, if you say something is artistic, it's kind of art-like. And of course, there are certain history around female practitioners that were artistic <laughs> and, and are artists who would do art with a capital A. So there's a notion of like the minor or the, the kind of not properly accepted, you know, within such a notion of artistic, which I quite like. And I think it, it mattered in that decision. So it's like looking like art or, or resembling art and being aware of its somehow outsider status, you know, even within definitions of art. And we very much have gotten those kinds of wide field of practitioners where I feel, yes, uh, many are, and including myself, you know, we, we don't really have a proper place within the kind of exhibition circuits, but we are still art, artists and, and dedicated practitioners. But where are these people in the big circuits, you know, with the capital A? I'm not too sure. So it kind of suits from that side as well. But if you are coming from design or from music or from other disciplines, I'm aware that, you know, we are not appearing to be as open to these other disciplines because of that word artistic that puts people off because they kind of feel it is a particular type of practice we're looking for. And music, for example, or design does not always and sometimes even 
strongly dislikes that notion of art because design isn't art. I'm being told, for example, by some people quite strongly. Why would you seek those labels? It's unfortunate, I would say. I don't know, but that's the history and, and that's the situation at the moment. We can still live quite positively with that, but, but I can, I can see all these problematics there. It had to have a name <laughs> and that, and that for the time being was that. Yeah. It's a movement without a proper name. Maybe it can never have a proper name. This is what a lot of people have discussed years ago. I'm not sure where the discussion is now, but whether or not it's a discipline, artistic research. I mean, a field people could kind of sign up to, a discipline not. But this kind of namelessness, I mean, as I said, it's not that things can't be named. It is that the name is not preceding its articulation, which means that if it had a name that was so to speak, having a grip on future histories, you know, they would also foreclose that history, that future history. Whilst if you, in a way, accept this unfitting name as a gesture of openness and a gesture of, in a way, you know, like a gap or fissures that, that would never really fit, the thing you're going to make will also never really fit. And it's great because nothing's really fitting, but you're assembling yourselves and you're affiliating yourselves within a social cultural context of practice that would nevertheless allow you a certain in a way association and claim that it's not just art in quotation marks but it's actually a research activity that you're doing and it requires to be taken seriously as such and that's a difference between for example my personal website which i don't really have anymore properly and a presentation of my work on the research catalog, which said it's the research catalog, it's got institution, it's got other researchers. You know, it may be a personal website, but the name and that particular channel stage what I do and what I've documented about my practice differently and attach it with a claim that's relevant to me, which I could not do myself. I mean, I can, can claim it, but it would not have the same claim if I just have my own, you know, website and domain name and I just say, this is research. So the social elements, you know, and the kind of, affiliations and direct or indirect connections that are being made are really important as well. Yes. Michael, you've just mentioned the phrase now, but one of the points you made in your paper at the ARA conference was the necessity for research, be it artistic or any other form, to have an epistemological engagement. And that without that epistemological engagement, it risks not being taken seriously in a wider context of knowledge. Can you expand upon that? Doesn't that mean at least taking on board some of the procedures, some of the modes of testing that are perhaps antithetical to what most practitioners in the arts are most comfortable with? I mean, it depends. That already assumes a or certain epistemologies and if that was the case you may exclude as it has happened these practitioners you're speaking of so this is why the question of epistemology is so important to me that if i say right i accept whatever happens within those practices as epistemically relevant i ask myself what are the epistemologies that would allow that to happen under the same roof than, for example, theoretical physics or whatever, <laughs> you know, other areas might do research and I accept it as such. This is why I find that question of epistemology is so crucial. I think the reason for this is that if I look at contemporary art, including all sorts of forms of art now, when I use that word, I mean, I do also have problems with the aesthetics, but I'm not really as troubled by this in the same way because I feel people are taking a lot of different choices which are not necessarily negatively sanctioned. For example, if you're doing like a blockbuster show and it's all about, you know, the spectacle, the same artist may be doing something very quiet somewhere where very different things happen. And it seems to be okay for that to sit side by side and different strategies are being used. So there's a, a large variety of aesthetical choices that are being taken. I've got much less problems with that. On the epistemological side, to my mind, this is really where I find the biggest deficit is that we don't know the terms by which we would actually approach art. So why would it actually have a knowledge claim? What kind of claim would that be? And, and how would that need to be negotiated with other 
knowledge claims. And, and that's really problematic. So one of the reasons why I've worked so much around the history of experimentation within the sciences, in particular, I worked around Hans-Jörg Reinberger's notion of experimental system in various publications around that, where basically within those developments within historical epistemology and within science and technology studies, you've got departures from a top-down model of theory first and then we experiment or whatever towards a much more material and local activities that are in a way underdetermined and then the knowledge that those systems would produce is open and, so to speak, in the future, which means that you don't even know whether it is science that happens in these spaces or not, or whether it's art or not. But what comes out of this can be represented within scientific, say, publication or within artistic context for that matter. But that laboratory space or the studio space is, is an underdetermined space, but it's an epistemically rich space. But the epistemicity of that space is different to the epistemicity of the representation of the knowledge that those spaces generate. And, and that's quite an interesting uh, relationship. So we have to think uh, roles of representation and production and reception as well in a different relationship, maybe. And to my mind, it's possible, but difficult to look at what you may call knowledge objects or items of articulation such that they in a way, partially represent knowledges and partially enact the knowledge so that we can never really determine at the moment of articulation what it is that is being articulated. Whilst you might say in a scientific or in a more scientific context, it's still somehow that the proposition that is being articulated has to be fully understandable, or at least you have to hedge for areas that are not understood. So we'd have to say future research would have to cover this and that ground. Blah, blah, blah. Whilst in our case, somehow the aesthetic or embodied or other dimensions, uh, whatever it may be, you know, allow for unknown or elements of, of not knowing to coexist within elements of knowing within articulation and give that mode of articulation a particular epistemic status and potentials. And in my opening address uh, at the conference, I was highlighting in two elements, really, why I think, historically speaking, if you look at on a global scale, artistic research may have a role to play. I mean, one has to do with simply speed, meaning that the world is changing so quickly, in particular driven through technology, that if we want to act on the here and now in a knowing way, we would always be too late because the science needs its time to come up with these determinations of knowledge that the here now has changed at the moment I understand what it was five years ago or 10 years ago. So would you give up this idea of a conscious, uh, a knowing place from which decisions are being taken? Or would you say that maybe there are modes of knowledge that can be had earlier, but they are maybe slightly less determined than the later in the knowledges that can be had about this here now, but at least their knowledge situations and, and, and not that, that they're simply anything goes, you know, anybody has an opinion without it having some form of proper foundation and therefore being able to be also contested and have claims, in particular when it comes to policy making and the kind of gatekeeping that happens when, when, when decisions are made towards the future of our planet and cultures. So the one has to do with maybe we need modes of research that are less strong, but more now. And maybe artistic research is one of these notions that can bring us closer to the moment of action and decision and agency within a fast-moving world. Um, and the second has to do with complexity and the struggle even within the sciences historically, to deal with the unity of knowledge, which means that actually not even the sciences know on which epistemological ground they're still standing. So who is there to take care of, in a way, the unity of this? Who, who takes care of areas that their discipline is kind of screening out? So you are having this very fragmented worldview and no particular science or research enterprise feels responsible to take care of 
the whole of knowledge as it's developing and the only uh, you know fields within this western academic structure you know what is and has been philosophy which of course i've also studied in in, in my first degree is such that it has no conceptual handle on non-conceptual things <laughs> that that we do and that has somehow disqualified a lot of philosophical contributions from our discourse it's not that we're not informed by it, but it is that, in a way, there has to be an understanding that the conceptualizations of actions taking within that messy uh, studio lab space is already exerting an agency on the knowledge objects that may not and often do not favor what the practitioners themselves do. And therefore, they are finding philosophical articulations of what it is they're doing that are not representing what it is they're doing. So that whole area of philosophy is, is highly troublesome. And a lot of things I read written by artistic researchers within the field or discipline of philosophy, I, I'm often troubled by this because as if you could fit this and that practice within that philosophical system of thinking. However, it may be exciting, philosophically speaking, to do that. At what point has the system of practice and the materiality and locality of that practice actually changed to fit into that philosophical framework isn't always debated because what is the language with which you would talk about that that hasn't yet been conceptually identified? And then you move into fiction, literature, whatever area, and then you're within the artistic research field, even within philosophy. Michael, can I... Go back to the Aura conference in January, which, of course, put forward the question, how does artistic research decolonize knowledge and practice in Africa? And I think you were very circumspect in your keynote address about specifically addressing that question, but rather presenting experiences, debates that should be taken into account by African artists when trying to address the struggle with colonial structures of knowledge. But what is your sense about the potential relationship between artistic research and the decolonizing project? Well, I'm not really well-traveled, nor have I got a practice that is, isn't really very conceptual and, and somehow confined within some very limited, almost technical, technological, conceptual modes. So I'm personally quite aware of the, the limitations of what, what I am or represent or do for that matter. So when I traveled to South Africa, and it's my first time in Africa, I didn't want to go and say something about whatever might have happened there, happened there that I would assume I know. So I wanted to learn, really. So in the opening address to an event that I hadn't witnessed at that point, I, I couldn't really say anything other than to suggest you know, where my interest lies and my own excitement lies about that. And I can kind of rephrase this maybe slightly differently today. But I have to say that given the younger history of artistic research within South Africa that I've become aware of through the conference, if you were to compare what was presented and happened through the conference to a conference of the same size that would happen in a country that has a longer history of artistic research, you wouldn't really feel or get a sense that there is a deficit of any sort. I mean, it's it's as much on the level, I'd say, that I would have experienced in other places. So in a way, that lack of history doesn't mean that what happened in that conference wasn't contributing to a global discourse on the same level as other conferences would have done. So that, that's the one thing one really has to say. And secondly, and, and that, that was really stark, whilst we're in, in my context here, you know, of course, people talk about inclusions, but if you look at the practices that are being presented and the people themselves who present those research elements, you know, it is absolutely non-inclusive what you see in most conferences here in the North or in the West or whatever geographic label you'd put on this. And I was really struck by the much, much greater variety and in a way 
the possibility of what this conference could bring together, integrate, also on the level of the audience. I talked to one audience member, a young person who I hadn't known before, and I'm not into contact, but we had a longer chat. He's not even an artist, nor academic. He just read about it on Facebook and came by to see what's happening, basically, and to learn. And I thought, wow, I mean, I've never actually spoken to anybody in these 10 years of conference I went to who didn't come with a quite specific artistic or academic purpose, simply a person from the street who wanted to check stuff out, and a young person for that matter. That was extraordinary. But also when you look at, say, levels of disabilities or the kind of different histories and history of practice that the conference has brought together, I don't think I've seen anything as rich as that conference before. So so there's also value in that. And maybe the, the, the third point to say is, uh, which, of course, it's clear when you think about it, but, you know, having witnessed the conference, you know, makes it differently clear <laughs> that somehow within the usual context's I am moving in and I've been moving in, one can sometimes kind of ignore that it's also political space and a contested space, meaning there's enough wiggle rooms sometimes to feel free of those political questions. And what I've learned at the conference was that history, the, the political histories and the current realities are so strong that one couldn't even have the fantasy of thinking that's a space where you know life isn't contested at that moment. And somehow when I came back, I thought that this idea that one would have a discourse without those implications is really a kind of a falsehood and a luxury item that comes from a very specific European history, say, that just doesn't really apply, at least not in South Africa, but probably not globally. So these were the maybe the elements I learned. But I was happy then to think <laughs> that the opening address somehow anticipated some of these elements in some ways. And maybe I would say what I was trying to express was that, first of all, artistic research is something that is not settled and may never be settled or should never be settled, meaning that there is no authority in place that would tell you what it is you should be doing. It is actually something to do with your own voice and your own articulation of who you are and what you're doing in a context that is actually respectful towards possibilities that are not yet anticipated within those you know, histories that we know of. So why not have practices that are not yet or have not been recognized, for example, as art in the same way? where, for example, maybe pigeonholed into particular local practices, say craft or whatever, where in fact could well be fine art labels and, and, and those kind of things feel all part of, of a certain system whereby people and practices and also the knowledge that entails are already predetermined and pigeonholed in particular ways. And our model from the onset says, you know, we don't want to do this. We want to listen first or hear or see what the submission wants to say and then try to trace how it establishes its own relevance within research context. And of course, in some sense, this implies that voices from Africa, for example, would be equally relevant than somebody who's bang in the middle of a Central European or like Western European art school. There's no real reason to differentiate that. And the question is, what would come up? What kind of practices would you witness? And for us then, what kind of in a way, social space would we need to develop for peer review? We've just published a submission from India, for example, where you know we have to learn a lot around those particular philosophies and, and contexts within which you know that's relevant. So it's a challenge, but it's an exciting challenge to see that actually practices and knowledges that are not accepted yet or even within the field of art can surface and can be given a voice and be seen as, as relevant. The question is, what does this mean to the kind of, say, paradigm, whether there are elements within what I've presented, for example, that are still, according to this, Europe has developed a model and now it's kind of <laughs> been advocated across the world thing, or, or whether actually, at some point, those voices that would articulate their practices as research would make us reconsider 
what it is that we think are the right responses. No? And, and that's an exciting perspective where I basically felt, and I, I hope I said as much at least in the various conversations I had around the conference, that I feel desperate to be told by artists from Africa or from all over the world at what point we are still, in a way, applying or operating with presuppositions that are creating the kind of disadvantages that people have experienced for such a long time. Michael, thank you very much. I think that's a very good point to end this particular conversation. And it's certainly our hope, I think all of us who are exploring this space here in Africa, to really stimulate and encourage the development of voices and practices that can speak in that way that, that you, you are open to listening to. So I hope we can find ways to continue conversations such as this. And thank you very much for your time. No, absolutely. And just to say, I really meant what I just said. It's the other way around it needs to go, meaning whoever listens to this podcast who have something valuable to say that they find disadvantage within the normal channels of publication to actually make their case and submit it and will work it out in these moments and then things will change. You know, it's not so much a discourse about, it's actually, you know, a discourse with it. So more important than me speaking is actually me experiencing the differences and the different possibilities that different practices entail and then to work out what kind of world it is that we then live in or the kind of world that we can possibly live in then. So it's actually, I'm really longing for, for submissions <laughs> that would change in a way the order even within our own operations. Anyway, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you and, and to your listeners about this and I'd be happy to be back. Thank you very much, Michael. We'll continue the conversation in various channels, I hope. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Dochedy, the Head of Arts Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Dr. Michael Schwab, co-initiator and inaugural editor-in-chief of JAR, the Journal for Artistic Research. The podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast Decompress was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.